Welcome to The Neutral Ground. Aristotle famously argued that poetry is a more philosophical and serious thing than history. For poetry speaks of universals, while history is confined to particulars. You've heard me mention on this podcast, or rather I should say argue, that one of the defining traits of our neo-modern times is our yearning to create or forge stabilized narratives that can help us make sense of ourselves and the world around us, and how at times these yearnings to create stabilized narratives can very much lead to conflicts. It's for this reason that I've invited Dr. Stephen Norris. Dr. Norris's work focuses on modern Russian history, with an emphasis on visual culture and propaganda since the 19th century. He has devoted his career to a study of Russian history and identity, penning two books, A War of Images, Russian Popular Prince, Wartime Culture, and National Identity, 1812 to 1945, which was published in 2006, and Blockbuster History in the New Russia, Movies, Memory, Patriotism, published in 2012. Dr. Norris is currently working on a biography of the most significant Soviet political caricaturist, Boris Efimov, entitled Communism's Cartoonist, Boris Efimov and the Soviet Century, which will not only tell the tale of Efimov, who lived from 1900 to 2008, but it will also be a biography of Soviet propaganda and the Soviet experiment. Norris will be co-curating the first major exhibit of Efimov's cartoons, currently planned for 2022 at the Wind Museum in Los Angeles. I am very grateful to Dr. Norris for offering his time and helping us to try and better understand what is currently happening in Ukraine. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Norris. Steve, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Joe. Well, we're going to be discussing a very uh, serious topic here, and people are fighting for their country and for their lives in Ukraine, and we want to respect the gravity of of this conflict, both for the people in Ukraine, but also for the potential geopolitical ramifications that this can have going forward in the region as well. But it is important for us to come to these things with with an understanding of, of trying to to see the role that narrativization kind of plays in these moments. And so what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by asking you to narrate for us, how do you see us arriving at this conflict today? How did we get here? It's a good question, Joe, and I appreciate the, the tone you set it up with. Um, part, partly I say it's a good question, and, and my first response here is because I, like so many, was really taken by surprise by the nature of the invasion of Ukraine, by the scale of what's going on right now, by the violence and the shelling going on in, in, in Ukraine today. So there was something that we didn't quite expect in this. And the answer to the question, though, how we got there is, in part, people like me, I think, should have connected some dots that we didn't connect as well before. Um, and the, those dots began when Vladimir Putin became president in 2000, when he launched the Second Chechen War and did things that we're seeing today in Ukraine to Chechnya, to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, to eliminate what he saw as an existential threat to 
the Russian Federation terrorists at that time is what he labeled the, the Chechen rebels. Uh, he, he did similar things in, in Georgia in 2008 when they invaded, when he was prime minister, but you know, really still in power. Uh, again, over a breakaway region that's, that claimed that they wanted Russia's help, um, but also at a time in 2008 when the then Georgian president, Mikhail Saakashvili, was openly seeking Georgian entry into the EU and NATO. So this was the pretext, also launched, by the way, during uh, an Olympics in Beijing. And then some of the things happened in 2014 with the, with the seizure of Crimea. Um, and, and again in Syria, when Putin and the Russian army in, in, uh, invaded that country and shelled it. So there's a pattern here that in part we missed. But the, the reason why I think we missed is because we also needed to connect the, the, the ramping up of the rhetoric, the narrative, as you suggested, that Putin and his, his officials were, were using. So part of this involves grievances that stem from the breakup of the Soviet Union. Part of it involves Putin's continual insistence that he seems to be the one to save Russia and rebuild Russia's greatness. Um, this is, explains in part his increasingly radical rhetoric about the nature of Ukraine, which he's never taken seriously as a state or as a, a separate people, but one that's grown more radical, more pronounced uh, over the last several years. And then the final piece of the puzzle here, I think, of how we got to this state and why we were still taken by surprise is, is just how isolated Putin seems to be now. He, he's He's grown more isolated over his time in, as president. I mean, it's now been 20 years, uh, particularly after 2012 when he returned to the presidency and his circle grew smaller, but even more so uh, during the, uh, the pandemic when he, he cut off all contact. Now people who even visit with him have to spend a week in quarantine before talking to him. He really seems to only have one or two people he talks to regularly now. And, and the images we've all seen of Putin sitting you know, across the table from Macron, but also images of Putin meeting with his ministers where he's sitting in a very large room and everyone else is sitting very far away from him, really speaks to this isolation. And, and the end of the story here is that I think Putin believes what he has been saying and believes what he's been told because he has only yes men around him and believes that Ukraine today is a failed state, that it's run by Nazis, that Ukrainians really are brother peoples who need to be rescued and liberated, just like Crimea needed to be rescued and liberated, just like the Ossetians needed to be rescued and liberated in 2008, and so on and so forth. And, and to do so, in, in order, in his mind, to, uh, to make Russia great again, he needs to launch this invasion and restore the, the kind of 19th century great Russian empire in that part of the world, including Ukraine and Belarus. Yeah, we're actually going to touch upon quite a few of, of the parts that you mentioned in that. And actually, I'd like to begin with uh, something you mentioned in our email exchanges, which was this idea of you've been studying this kind of ramping up of a new patriotic culture in Russia since roughly, I think, 2000 kind of mentioned. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and how you think this connects with our current circumstances? I think it does have deep, deep connections. Uh, so the, the story that I have traced in, in the book I wrote called Blockbuster History in the New Russia focuses on films, but it's, it, films are a, are a convenient stand-in for a whole series of cultural products um, that, came, that have emerged in Russia since Putin became president. But the story really begins in the 1990s, and it helps explain the nature of the Soviet collapse and what the 1990s meant for Russians living through 
that collapse. I mean, the collapse took over 10 years, we should say that. And it, the, the economy bottomed out not once but twice, initially under shock therapy. And then again, after August 1998, when the, when the Russia um, defaulted on its IMF loans and the ruble you know, went into free fall again. Around that time, many important figures in the Russian cultural sphere were beginning to talk about the need for something good, broadly defined, uh, to, to replace the, the overwhelming focus on deprivations and violence and all the bad that had happened in Russia since the collapse of, of the Soviet Union in 1991. And around 1998, around the time of the ruble collapse, a number of figures in the Russian film world began to talk about the need for the Russian film industry to revive. It, it had collapsed completely along with communism and the need to, to have something positive in movie screens as opposed to Hollywood films that were flooding the market at that time. So there was a, a response to the uh, Hollywood films. There was this kind of cultural need to do something different to get out of the patriotism of despair as one really good book title calls it. And all of this coalesced around 1998, 1999. And it sort of got put on the shelf as the ruble collapsed because there wasn't a lot of money for movies. Uh, but around the time the ruble rebounded, around the time oil prices went up, around the time Putin became president, a number of important of these important figures, including the head of Mosfilm, the largest studio in Russia, the head of the Russian Cinematographers Union, Nikita Mihalkov, began to talk about the need for audience-friendly films that would be patriotic and that would get Russians back in the movie theaters to see something about themselves that you know made them feel good about themselves. So all these things came together at the right at that same time. Putin had nothing to do with this. I mean, he had just become president. He was focusing on the Chechen war, and so for the first eight years of his presidency, we we actually could extend that to the 2012 if we include the Medvedev years as part of. Putin 1.0, let's say, there were a number of films at the movie theaters that, that took a range of topics, Hollywood styles, Russian themes, narratives that went from cartoons about the medieval Russia to movies about World War II that explored in meaningful ways the nature of that war and the sacrifice of Soviet soldiers in that war, movies about the 19th century, and so on and so forth. And, and the cultural ministry at that time, this was headed by Mikhail Shvidkoy, uh, like most European ministries of culture, helped fund these movies, put no real parameters around them. I mean, there was this sort of shared interest in having feel-good movies at, at the movie theaters. So that's, that's important because it offered a whole bunch of topics. It, it, it did, in fact, lead to the revival of the Russian film industry. A number of blockbuster films in the 2000s began to outdo American Hollywood films and you know, in terms of the weekend box office. So like the Lord of the Rings movies got beaten by Russian blockbusters. And this was seen as a good thing. And primarily in my book, I, I thought this was a relatively good thing too, because of the way in which the government didn't really uh, use a carrot and stick approach to the movies. They, they left movie makers to do what they wanted to do. Some of the films actually explored some really tough topics. There was a popular TV series called Strafbot that looked at the use of penal battalions in World War II and the way in which they were often employed as cannon fodder during World War II. Flash forward then to the Duma elections in December 2011, the announcement that Putin was going to return as the president, the breakout of massive protests in Moscow and other cities in December 2011 because of that. Um, when Putin returned to the presidency, he appointed a new cultural minister, uh, Vladimir Medinsky, who oversaw a much stricter program uh, that tapped into this patriotic culture that had been created in the 2000s. And so uh, 
Medinsky was quite clear. He wanted movies that had very particular topics and themes. There was a list, Russians firsts in the world, heroism of Russian soldiers and their brother, brotherliness with uh, fellow Soviet soldiers, heroism of Russian soldiers in the 19th century in order for the government to really employ, kind of use this patriotic culture for their own purposes. And, and I think that's been the, the theme of Putin 2.0. There's Putin 1.0 is relatively tame, but we see the emergence of, at least in the cultural sphere, the emergence of this patriotic culture and all kinds of different narratives that went with it. Putin 2.0, 2012 to the present, has been the harnessing of that patriotic culture for the state's purposes. And, and not just in movies. I mean, that's what I study too, but we've seen it in uh, in terms of the, the, the grassroots initiatives to produce a new symbol to celebrate victory in World War II, the St. George's Ribbon, which came out of you know, a, a Moscow journalist wanted to do something and then the state kind of took over it. Similar, similarly, the, the so-called Immortal Regiment, which marches every year during Victory Day, which began in Siberia. Uh, again, a grassroots initiative that asked people to hold pictures of their relatives and loved ones who had died in World War II now is essentially part of the state program for Victory Day. So that, that, that ratcheting up of the government's uh, role in the cultural sphere is part of the story. And last part of the answer, uh, is that part of the narratives that emerged in the second wave of patriotic culture under Putin is, is the discussion of notions such as the fact that, you know, the, the idea that the Soviet Union liberated Europe from fascism, saved the world in part, uh, that, you know, the, the heavy-handed focus on Nazis as being the main enemies here and the need to eradicate Nazism, uh, is part of this the narratives that have been offered uh, in movie theaters. And sometimes at the end of these movies, there have been quite clear nods to the present. There was a movie called Saving Leningrad a couple years ago. Re really terrible movie. Didn't do very well overall because it was terrible. But it was quite clear that at the end, there was this, you know, again, this narrative of the, the fact that Soviet soldiers helped liberate themselves and liberate the world and save the world from fascism. And then at the end, when when Leningrad has been, the siege of Leningrad has been lifted and people are walking down Nevsky Prospect, the main street in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. It sort of transitions to the immortal regiment marching. So, you, you know, Russians are encouraged then to go to the movie theater and see the connections between the past and the present in ways that weren't always true in that first wave of patriotic movies of the early 2000s. What's fascinating to me about all of this is just how much this reoccurs throughout history and and how how much it actually it works I, I was thinking about even just um with virgil the poet virgil and writing the aeneid about rome and how upon the death of virgil uh, augustus caesar adopts this document which is fictional mostly fictional uh, connecting the rise of rome with the fall of troy of the trojan uh you know war but it worked. It didn't matter necessarily what parts were true and not. It gave it gave Rome this document and this this mythological history to coalesce around, and just how 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 strong of a power that actually is. It, on on the Sam Harris podcast, the Waking Up podcast, he had on Gary Kasparov, and Kasparov said the following, which I found to be a striking uh, line that I want to ask you about. He said, truth is to Putin what daylight is to the vampire. Now, I want to ask you, is, is truth the greatest weapon for the dissenters in Russia 
who are trying to push back against Putin's war in Ukraine? Yeah, very good question. So I want to respond to something else you said, and that is part of what's going on in this patriotic culture I described is the employment of myth, much like Virgil. And, and here, myth, in my view, is, is not always a negative thing. I think it's come to be seen as falsehoods. It's not. It's the, it, you know, it's a story that has something significant for those that want to believe in it. But good myths, uh, just like good propaganda for that matter, uh, involve kernels of truth. But they're massaged and flattened out in ways that that take out nuance and complexity. And so, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, I think what we saw in Russia in, in the movie theaters, but also in, in terms of the novels released and, and, you know, movies shown on television, TV serials, did involve some mythic components, but there was still, there was still room for complexity, for nuance. Uh, not so much since 2012. And the other thing that went on in, after 2012, I, I referenced Vladimir Medinsky, the Minister of Culture, who left in 2020 to, to take on another governmental role in the, the shakeup in 2020 that Putin oversaw, but he's still very prominent. Uh, Medinsky emerged around 2008 or so when then-President Medvedev formed these falsification panels. So there was, you know, there was a backlash beginning in the late 2000s to the patriotic culture that emerged in the early 2000s that suggested things like Strafbat, that penal battalion serial, went too far. You know, it wasn't patriotic enough. It suggested we didn't win the war because we were heroic. And that led to a, a number of voices you know, griping about the need to clamp down on what they saw as the falsification of our history. And Medinsky was infamous in this because, you know, among other things he said and has said since, is that truth is what Russia says it is. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. But he also, um, he got his PhD in history, that is Medinsky. It emerged in the 20-teens that he plagiarized his dissertation. That didn't stop him from being cultural minister. It didn't stop him from taking that basic uh, concept of the falsification panels and applying it to his cultural program. So think about that now. You know, truth is what Russia says it is. You have a plagiarizer in charge of the cultural ministry, and he's overseeing films and greenlighting them or not using government money based on not so much the real truth, but the way the state sees the truth. Uh, and that is that has proven very difficult to penetrate because it does, you know, it, it, back to the myth story here and, and back to the nature of patriotism itself, which is, can be very diffuse. Uh, there is still something that Russians want to salvage from the past. You know, they don't want to just constantly uh, bury themselves in all the terrible stories. No, no, no society really wants to do this. So I think Medinsky knows this quite well and really uh, takes advantage of it. To tie off one loose end here, uh, Medinsky was the person that Vladimir Putin appointed to lead the peace delegation at the border of Belarus to, to talk to Ukrainians. So you can imagine what I thought when I heard this. I mean, this is not a, real, a serious effort when you have the former cultural minister who's plagiarized his dissertation, who's overseeing this program, go and lead a, a peace delegation. I mean, that's, that's the sort of person involved here. The question of dissidence, is truth the only thing out there? Yes. Uh, I think that is, that is their greatest weapon. Th the problem is given that the Russian state and its media arms oversees its own versions of truth and is clamping down on any, uh, any debate that, that contradicts it, uh, means that they're in the driver's seat here. They have, they have the, the power. And, and, and one of the things that's gone on in the Russian media sphere, again, largely since 2012, although we see roots of it before that, is, is the argument that count already counteracts any attempt to offer other truths. Um, 
you know, that is, don't listen to what other people tell you. They're anti-Russian. They're unpatriotic. This is a special military operation to employ the language used right now. If someone calls it a war, they're lying. Um, if, if you see any images that suggest somebody's been shelled or a building's been destroyed, it's not us who did it because we're good. You know, we're the same sort of people you've seen on the movie screens or on television screens here. We're those good, heroic, hardy soldiers who liberated Europe. It's the bad Nazis over there that have staged things. And that, that's very difficult to counteract, um, extremely difficult, in fact. And I think that's what um, you know, many who, who are trying to resist Putin, and there are many in Russia, have found very difficult to penetrate that bubble. It's, it's, it is almost impenetrable. My understanding is that just about every significant social media platform has been shut off. They are now. Um, you've had some interactions with, with people there, though. Can you say, are they finding other ways of getting different forms of the narrative? They are. Um, a, a lot of the difficulty in getting real stories, truthful stories, the real truths out there, is that many don't want to hear them. I mean, they're, they're, it is still possible to get legitimate news, to get uh, alternative voices in Russia, even with the shutting offs of, um, you know, like Echo Moscow, the influential radio station, or TV Rain, the one independent TV station left. Uh, you know, the internet hasn't been shut off entirely in Russia. So it's, it's a matter of choice, really, which makes it doubly problematic. So I think a lot of the people who probably need to hear at least more critical voices just are choosing not to. They're, they're relying on state TV or they're just relying on you know, what, what they think themselves is going on. Um, but there are a couple sites, uh, media platforms that are, I think, employing some really clever methods. I don't know how much they're working. I'm thinking here, especially of Novaya Gazeta, the, the last remaining independent newspaper in, in Russia. The, the editor, Dmitry Muratov, won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. So the, the way Novaya Gazeta has, has walked a very fine line is they do not use the word war because they're forbidden to do so. They call it, but they also don't call it a special military operation. They report on what's going on in Ukraine, and then they have a parenthetical statement, the word that we cannot use right now. And they are telling the truth. The problem there is, uh, again, that Nova Gazeta has already been seen as an anti-state, unpatriotic platform. So anyone who doesn't want to listen to them can just use that, that language. You know, oh, you, you guys, of course you guys are saying these terrible things about Russia. You are terrible. You've always said terrible things about Russia. And I think, I think that's what's so difficult right now. Now, you know, yesterday, there was this moment that got everyone talking um, on social media, when a producer at the at uh, Pervi Canal, the first station, that is the, the primary government television station in Russia, went on the air when the presenter was live reporting the news with a sign that said, no to war, don't listen to the propaganda, they're lying to you, appeared on screen for maybe five seconds before she was, before this, you know, the screen went dark and then she was arrested and no one knows where she is right now. There's some debate now in Russia about how many people really saw that, whether the state, the station was able to, to blur out the sign. But clearly something happened there. And something happened in the ways that uh, the majority, sadly, of Russian citizens who are getting this information about the special operation, about you know, the war being limited and not, not even being a war, did have a little bit of, of a ripple there. We'll see if that can continue. But it's, it's, it's a very interesting sign. So piggybacking off of this a little bit, 
because again, you're prompting me to think about different questions even than I had. So if, when we think of, of this, this kind of despotism and, and control, one might ask that station that you mentioned that is saying something like, you know, the word we cannot say that is labeled as anti-state. One would think that the simple answer would be for the regime to simply shut them down completely, just stop. But I, I wonder whether or not maybe uh, this is a this is connected to this idea of creating multiple platforms now of social media. Is it that it, it looks worse now for a state to shut down a platform, knowing full well that there will be others propping up? Is that why it doesn't just like the, the regime just doesn't take it away? This is a really good question uh, because TV Rain, uh, Echo Moscow, so TV Rain, the last independent te- television station that was finally taken off the air a couple weeks ago when the war began, Echo Moscow, an influential radio station based in Moscow that was also um, taken off the air, while influential amongst a certain population of Russians, isn't influential overall. So one does have to ask why are, are you? attracting more attention by shutting them down than you really want or or what what exactly is going on here uh, now nove gazeta this newspaper is also a, something of a mystery it's it's it, it's hard to explain exactly how muratov the editor has managed to stay in business as long as he has as an independent newspaper that itself has been quite critical of the russian government over time i mean it's the newspaper that anna polakovskaya reported for before she was killed um, now in you know 2000, gosh, seven or eight, it's been a long time. So he he has managed always to walk a thin line. There's a lot of reports that you know he he knows some influential people in the Russian government and kind of always is able to, to placate them somehow. So, but again, you know the, the narrative is already there for anyone who doesn't want to listen to Novay Gazette or read Novay Gazette online or in its paper form. You know, it's anti-state. What, one of the things the the Russian government has done again in this climate of since 2012 is is force media outlets that receive funding from abroad to label themselves foreign agents. So it's already clearly marking, again, for anyone who you know happens to visit them, this is a foreign agent. Therefore, it, sh- it shouldn't be trusted. You know, the real outlets to trust are the TV channels you see every day that don't carry the label foreign agents, the ones that are telling you things are okay in Russia, that it's okay to, to be Russian, you can feel good about it. Um, so, yeah, your question—that's that's the mystery. Why why go after these these uh, outlets that that you know, while influential, are, are only really influential amongst the population that, that wants to receive critical news? Yeah, I, th- I think this is something that we we struggle with today. All of us, the entire world, at this point, is this idea of of if you want to suppress truth, in some ways it's better to just let it sit and then just label it something, a, a buzzword phrase, and then it becomes easier for people to simply use that phrase and dismiss its validity. That's pretty frightening, actually. It is frightening. And there are some frightening signs. I mean, uh, the, the laws that have been passed recently, where now the, the crime for speaking out against the government will could get you up to 15 years in prison. That's what this woman who went on television last night is facing. Uh, the shutting down of these outlets that have already been labeled the way they have is, is quite frightening too. Um, worth mentioning here too, that the, the 
Putin government in the last couple of years has gone after Memorial, which is a human rights organization that originated in Moscow, still has its major branch in, branch in Moscow, has branches elsewhere. And it originated in the late 80s during the perestroika era, um, when some of the censorship and tightening of control occurred then under Gorbachev, in order to investigate the nature of Stalin's crimes. So Memorial, Memorial wanted to memorialize the, the victims of Stalinism, wanted to give names to numbers. And that was their starting point. They, they retain that. They're, they're an organization that tries to recognize and deal with the, the traumas of the Soviet era. Where they got in trouble in the 1990s and afterwards, at least from the point of view of the state, where, where I still admire them, I should say, is because they connected this basic principle to the wars in Chechnya and other uh, human rights violations of the Russian state in the 1990s and 2000s. So they've always been this, you know, this organization that the state likes to criticize, but has tolerated and, and still the Putin state still flourished in spite of what they thought of Memorial. So they're closed now. Uh, the head of the St. Petersburg branch was arrested and, and for crimes that he clearly couldn't have committed. I mean, they sort of trumped up charges of child pornography and things like that. So it's, the frightening part is that when, when the Putin state starts closing and clamping down on these relatively unimportant from their point of view and the, of, of what they think the Russian state should be like, what comes next? And I think that's what people are starting to ask now. Is this the beginning? You know, you start with that and then you, you use the terminology that you've already labeled these outlets um, and start employing them against more enemies at home. I mean, they're even using these terms, right? You know, although we can never, because I, I want to stick with this idea a little bit of, of, of this role of, of history as well, which you mentioned too, Although you can never fully know what's in, in the heart of any one individual, I found it interesting that uh, Nina Khrushcheva, the great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, actually said recently that Putin loves great people. And she means uh, particularly like Catherine the Great. And Putin has said this openly in speeches as well, that, that he admires her because she was able to gain a tremendous amount of territory with the least amount of bloodshed. Now, of course, both Putin and Catherine the Great share a very unique historical kind of moment here, and that is the annexation and re-annexation of Crimea. I'm curious here about, do you think that Putin sees himself as an agent of history and as a future story that will be told of, let's say, Putin the Great? I think that's how he sees himself, yes. And and there have been signs, you know, dating all the way back to 2000 again that we've, you know, because other things went on in Russia that maybe we didn't pay enough attention to. And I think you're right to ask this question too, Joe, because so much of the attention on Putin has has been in the form of his, his KGB past, has claimed that what he's trying to do is restore the Soviet Union. I don't think that's correct. I, I, clearly, I mean, it, we should pay attention to the fact he was a KGB agent. And clearly we should pay attention to what he's doing is, is trying to readdress the grievances he and others have had since 1991 and the nature of the collapse. But he's, he's done a lot of Bolshevik bashing over his, in, in his terms of, as president. What, what, he's, what he's managed to do is kind of create a, almost like a goulash patriotic culture. You take the bits that you like from the past and put it into one recipe. Some of that involves the Soviet past, the Brezhnev era and its relative stability, for example, 
you know, popular culture fi- cultural figures in that time. Certainly the victory in World War II gets added to this recipe. But a lot of it too is in the 19th century and even before. I mean, some, some of the movies that have come out uh, recently and that is since 2012 include the, the recitation of, of Prince Vladimir, the Viking who adopted Orthodox, Orthodoxy for Russia in 988 and this sort of mythic person here. And what he really seems to be doing, especially in the last couple of years, really highlighted in this, this 5,000-word essay he wrote and published last year that claimed Ukraine wasn't really a country and Ukrainians were just brother people, is a kind of recreation of the 19th century Russian nationalist vision of that part of the world, where Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus were all together. They were all fraternal people. They were all more or less the same people. They were Russians, little Russians, and white Russians. They weren't Russians, Ukrainians, yellow Russians. And, you know, as I said earlier, he's grown increasingly isolated. And so this is sort of the story he's told himself. This is the story he's getting from people like Medinsky, like Sergei Shoigu, his defense minister, who was a contractor. I mean, he's not really a, an army person. Um, he, he just is a yes man who's survived under Putin. Um, from his one longstanding friend that he seems to be meeting with almost exclusively these days. And it's created this vision that, you know, insofar as we can really say this for certain that he you know the, the the outcome of all these pronouncements over the years of the need for russia to be great again is the need to restore this sort of mythic historical space that involves ukraine and belarus and, and then become a new great I mean, he's always claimed that peter the great is his hero he always had a you know, from the the time he emerged in the 1990s in St. Petersburg as a political figure, had a picture of Peter the Great. You're right to say that it's really Catherine the Great and and her initial imperial conquests and visions that he's he's, he's seemingly echoing, tapping into. I, yeah, I find I find Putin to be incredibly intelligent when it comes to gauging historical moments, and like. Most despots, I think, and I've, I've talked with my students about this. Um, we did this actually as we were discussing, of all things, uh, Thanos from <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it turned very serious because we talked about the idea that one of the reasons that despots are able to rise into power is because they tend to couch their evil under the guise of benevolence. And so, as you mentioned, Putin's speech in in February, I think February 24th, I think, he talks about wanting to liberate the Eastern Ukrainians and and stop the genocide. And and as you mentioned, too, that you you can't, he refuses to refer to this as a war even back then. He didn't want to. He kind of said it's strategic military operation kind of thing, or military operation. He's also said that, or placed the blame on the West NATO and an aggressive kind of American or United States ethos as well creeping into Eastern Europe. He put demands that NATO should pull back completely, basically, even from the former, the former Soviet states that are, are part of NATO now. Now, he, he's smart enough to know that that's never going to happen. So then my question for you, and it's a difficult one, maybe even an unfair one to ask, but if he knows that this isn't going to happen, who are the who are the, to whom is he making these demands? Like for what purpose? 
Why are they out there then? If he already knows that that's not going to happen, who are these for? It is a very difficult question. So I'll answer it as best I can. And I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, to remind your listeners that uh, when, we, when we say Putin, for example, here, we're, we, sometimes we are referring to the actual person, that is one individual. And certainly that person, the, the president of Russia, who is, a, who is a despot these days, and we, are, we can use any kind of term, but um, it, it is the primary person responsible for launching this war. But we can also say Putinist or the Putin state, and, and we ought to, too, because there are people who help him and people who have aided him, people who are still around him now. Shoigu, I've mentioned the, the defense minister, Medinsky, the former cultural minister, this handful of people from his St. Petersburg days. But there are also innumerable people who enact these visions, including the producer of the of, uh, Channel One who stood up on and protested on camera yesterday. She, she published a um, a video beforehand saying, you know, admitting that she had spent too long propagating these myths and, and you know, playing her own small but relatively important role promoting this Putinist vision. So that it's, that's important to note because I, one answer to this question or one potential answer to this question is that Putin is still a relatively weak dictator or a weak despot. He, he does have to answer to a population, to his base. So if you've pumped up this notion across time that the West is to blame for everything that has gone wrong over the last 22 years, especially the economy as it's kind of really had its ups and downs um, since 2008. And if you've constantly said that what's going on in Ukraine is a CIA coup and it taps into all this you know, myths stemming from the Cold War era, and, you, know, you throw in NATO into that, you throw in CIA and NATO and you get your little recipe there, then at some point your base is going to, insist that you have to act, or at least you might think that your base wants you to act. I mean, there's the difficulty. We don't know the exact pressure he, he feels here or the rationale behind this, because you're right to say the outcome is so much muddier than it was in 2008 with Georgia and the Ossetia. He, got, he more or less got what he wanted there. You know, you declare these breakaway republics, recognize them, and then you destabilize the country enough so that they can't join the EU or NATO. He really did the same already in Ukraine and Crimea. He annexed Crimea, these two breakaway, breakaway republics have been recognized by the Russian state. Therefore, there are territorial disputes that would prevent Ukraine from joining the EU or NATO, perhaps. That's been the case since 2014. So it, it, this, what's going on now, I mean, I guess this is, brings us back to your first question. It, it, it's almost as if Putin and his advisors feel that this is now an existential issue, that this is his moment to take advantage of what they thought was a weak situation and, and do what they've really been promising and, and almost explicitly in the last two years, if not the last eight years. And that is to, to bring Ukraine back into the fold, to push it away from any attempts to embrace the West and all the evils of the West. And you're, you're right to say that, that Putin is sometimes very smart. He, he's certainly very clever. And he's an opportunist, not really a strategist. He, you know, I think what we've seen, and here again, when I say he, I mean those who aid him too, what we've seen over the last, well, 10 years really, but maybe even 20 years, are his attempts to take advantage of situations where he feels there's weakness or where the world's attention is elsewhere. That's the case in 2008 in Georgia. That was the case in Crimea in 2014. Again, insofar as we know, I think the reporting that, that I think is, is quite plausible here is that Putin thought this was another opportunity in the wake of the disastrous retreat from Afghanistan and the kind of ongoing bickering amongst many EU countries over the pandemic, uh, 
seeming weakness amongst NATO and EU uh, in terms of having a clear policy. This was a time to, to finally act decisively and bring Ukraine back into the fold. But clearly the strategy wasn't very good. He, he, you know, he failed spectacularly already. The fact that the war is still going on uh, speaks to this point. And he didn't get what he wanted in the fashion he thought he was going to get it, I think. And now, really, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I want to offer um, uh, another narrative here as well for us to, to consider. Uh, political scientist John uh, Mearsheimer has laid the blame for Russian aggression in Georgia, Crimea, and now Ukraine at the feet of the West, NATO, and uh, more specifically, the United States. And although I think that's a, a bit too reductive for me to simply, because I think it, it absolves Putin and the regime of of way too much responsibility here. I, I will I will ask this question as a balancing agent here. Should we or, or do we need to be mindful about our goals in creating stability in the region and avoid maybe what is a temptation to vanquish an old foe, let's say? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this. And I'm, I'm not an expert on NATO or NATO um, enlargement, but what I... I can't answer it in very particular ways. I'm glad you asked it because sometimes in the conversations we've been having about this war, including the one we're having now, although we're talking about very necessary things, I think, we forget that this is also about a sovereign nation of 44 million people um, that while it's had its troubles as a democracy, has in fact been a democracy in ways that Russia has not since 1992. I mean, they have seen peaceful transitions of power. They've seen... Um, protests that resulted in the removal of presidents that had, you know, reneged on their promises. They've seen a, a, the so-called Orange Revolution that also asked questions about uh, elections that were fraudulent. I mean, this is, this is a people that over the last 30 years and a country over the last 30 years that has demonstrated its desire for democracy. Now, democracies are very flawed things. We know that too. And it's, you know, one of the stories that gets told about Ukraine that I think it's too much airtime is that it's you know it's divided so it's extremely divided so that it can't be a united country it's divided between east and west divided between those who are pro-russian and those who are pro-european um there is some small truth to that but you know this is what democracies are like they, they have different peoples who see themselves and their place in the world differently they have debates about these things a lot of what's going on in ukraine over the last 30 years is in fact ukraine trying to figure out whether its orientation should be a little more toward the West and the EU, I mean, it is borders to Poland and EU countries, or whether, you know, what sort of relationship it should have to Russia, because of course it shares a border with Russia and people in the East of Ukraine primarily speak Russian. Uh, there's this, a, a great historian, uh, Yaroslav Herzog, who, who lives and works in Lviv, Ukraine, who I, where I visited and heard him give a lecture. And he, he likened Ukraine, this is now 10 years ago, to a bumblebee in that, you look at a big bumblebee and you think there's no way that thing can fly. It's fat, its wings are very small and fragile. How could that fly? But it does fly. And Ukraine is like that. I mean, you look at Ukraine sometimes and all you want to pay attention to are, are perceived differences. And yet again and again, Ukraine has flown as a, as a sovereign nation. That was true when Ukrainians voted for independence in 1991. It's even more true today. So therefore, the answer to the Mersheimer and the, the questions about 
about NATO expansion is that you know NATO is an institution that requires a country to apply for it, requires leaders of that country to express a desire to join NATO. Same for the EU. Those leaders have to be democratically elected. I mean, if you look at the list of what NATO needs to do, that's that's on it. There have to be no territorial disputes. There can't be any serious divisions within society that might lead to civil war because that would also weaken NATO. And and I think we sometimes forget that we look at NATO as this America, only American-led institution, where only America is trying to expand here. And we, we don't pay attention to what the Lithuanians think about NATO. They, they really like NATO. Approval ratings in Lithuania are high. There's only 2.5 million Lithuanians. They share borders with Belarus, too. They're worried, or Estonians and Latvians, too, what the Poles think of NATO. Approval ratings for NATO in Poland are very high, too, even if Poland itself as a democracy has slipped back a little bit in recent years. So, I mean, there's my answer, right? That we, we should allow for Ukrainians as a people, as a country, their government leaders who have been elected to decide what they want. Um, and I think seeing this, this, this war as solely one provoked or primarily provoked by the West and by NATO expansion is, is, is basically acknowledging Putin's view of the world, that Russia deserves to have some sort of space near its borders that, that it gets to control. I mean, why does Russia get to say that Ukraine should be neutral entirely or that parts of Ukraine should be part of Russia? Um, Russia has been the aggressor in the region now since at least 2008 in Georgia, if not before, in, in Chechnya. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's part of it. Now, last thing I'll say here is, of course, that doesn't preclude criticisms, criticisms of NATO as an institution. We should have that conversation too, but to, to say that it's driving the war, I think, is frankly ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. I think I think we need to be open to having the difficult and complex conversations about what is best for the region. You know, what is best for the region overall, and specifically for Ukraine, because sometimes I will admit, like you just did a little bit here too. When I hear these conversations, uh, it almost sounds as if we're not considering actually what Ukraine wants. <laughs> it's really more about the surrounding areas, you know, that pull between East, East and West ideals and, and asking Ukraine itself, what, what would you like? Maybe that, that's why I, I'm thinking our goal should be stabilization and then let them have their sovereignty. Right. You know, one what, what of the things... One of the factoids I've had to rediscover uh, since this war began is um, um, three related ones. So, in, you know, in 1991, this is August of 1991, late, late, you know, late July, early August 1991, when the Soviet Union was breaking up, the Ukrainian Soviet parliament voted, had a vote on whether or not Ukraine should break away from the Soviet Union. So this, this followed the Baltic uh, proclamations of independence the year before. I don't think anyone was surprised by that, given that the Baltic republics were forcibly annexed during and after World War II. But there was a lot of debate at that time that, you know, oh, Ukraine's not going to want to break away from the Soviet Union. I mean, they'd want to form some sort of new partnership. And certainly the Ukrainian Supreme Soviet isn't going to vote to break away. The vote was 346 to 2. So Ukrainian communist leaders were the first communist leaders to declare within the Soviet Union to declare their desire for independence. And then subsequently that that led Belarusian leaders, Uzbek leaders, and so on and so forth to do the same. And then, you know, by the way, at th that time, George H.W. Bush was visiting Gorbachev and he went to 
Kiev, Kiev, and and gave the speech saying, "Hey, hold on, don't break away. You know, you need to stay the course." And it was immediately labeled the Chicken Kiev speech because neither H.W. Bush nor Gorbachev really understood the sentiment on the ground. When Ukrainians were asked to vote in December 1991, simple question: Do you support independence? Um, 94% said yes, and every region voted yes. Crimea was the only one that voted under 80%. It was still 55% yes. Flash forward to 2001, the, the, so far the only real extensive census, that's the, this is the second factoid. Um, Ukrainians, you know, when, when asked to, to identify their nationality, 78% said they were Ukrainian, 17% said Russian. That's what democracies and states do. It just meant that there was a Russian minority within this Ukrainian state. There was supposed to be a census two years ago that has been postponed, but the early polls that, that reveal the same thing is that now 92% of, of people when asked their nationality say they're Ukrainian. And that includes many who speak Russian. So I use this because you know here, here across 30 years time are, are clear demonstrations about the nature of Ukraine as a civic nation and how it's tried to understand itself as a civic nation and as a, de as a democracy. So yes, we need to pay more attention to this. And yes, we need to listen to Ukrainian voices and, and think about what they want. Um, it seems as though now, especially, they're moving toward a, a, a vision of themselves in the world that is on par with Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And, and why wouldn't they? I mean, given what the way the Russian president has labeled them, treated them, invaded them. I have one one final question for you here. You've been quite wonderful with your time, Steve. I really appreciate it. I am forever an, an optimist, and I, I believe that cynicism is is our, our greatest foe in the 21st century. And I, I truly believe that actually. So you've you've been to these regions. You've been with these people. You know you've you know a, a, you've eaten food with them. You've walked the streets. I want to ask you, what gives you hope for this beautiful region? And I mean, you can enlarge that if you want to all of Eastern Europe. What gives you hope uh, for this region that, that has given us such great literature, music, and, and culture? It's hard to be optimistic right now, Joe, though I, I, I too am the sort of person who looks to the, you know, looks to the bright side of life or tries to anyway. Um, but what, what does give me small bits of hope uh, are, I guess, three sources right now. One is the fact that there are voices, there are works of literature and culture, as you said, that, that have already relayed truths that aren't out there yet in the, the media that people are consuming. And I think it will do so. I mean, I think that Ukraine in particular, but that whole region, including Russia, is well positioned to, to tell us stories um, that are heartbreaking and true at the same time, and will continue to do so, and already are doing so. A number of Ukrainian poets have, have already written beautiful, wonderful, horrible things about this war since 2014. The, the second is the response of you, Ukrainians themselves to the invasion has, has, has really been unexpectedly great. I mean, they're heroic. They, they deserve all kinds of praise. Uh, their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who, who single-handedly disproves almost every single thing Putin says about Ukraine. That is, he's not a puppet. He's a Russian-speaking Jewish guy from the east of Ukraine who had family who died in the Holocaust. So he's certainly not a Nazi either, um, who, was, who was not entirely popular prior to this war. I mean, he's had his struggles too, has, has 
proven himself to be a tremendous leader at this moment. Uh, in part because I think he's, you know, as a comic and a cultural figure, he's he knows how to speak to people and knows how to speak directly to people. So the the fact that everyone in Ukraine now sees themselves as Ukrainians and says this, and no, and there's no longer any sort of real division over the fact that some people speak Russian, some people speak Ukrainian, that, that gives me some hope, I, th- I think. And then last but not least, uh, you know, my friends in Russia, the people I speak to, the people I communicate with, are over, well, not overwhelming, they're, they're completely against the war. I don't, I don't have a friend in Russia that, that I'm close with that is for this war. And they're trying as best as they can to to add their voices to this equation. Um, most of them say they have been so written out of things by the state, they've been so atomized in some ways by the state that they, 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 can't, they can only do so much, but they're signing petitions, they're taking to the streets, they're do, you know, posting things when they can and where they can that document their own disapproval of this regime. So if there's any hope here, it's, it's in that, it's in the number of people across this place. Um, that are quite clearly united against this war and understand what it really is. It's not a special military operation. It's a war launched by a Russian president and the small clique of people he listens to for a base that is increasingly distant from reality. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, um, Steve, I'll be putting uh, links in the episode notes for uh, so people can learn more about your your work and your, your books. Um, but I, I want to truly thank you for joining us today and, and giving us this uh, professional insight into this incredibly complex uh, region, history, and, and situation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you asking me to join you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Stephen Norris. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Norris's work, you can use the links that I've provided in the episode notes below. Until next time. Let's all try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And for the sake of all the people involved in the war in Ukraine, let's all hope and pray that it ends very soon. <laughs>